The Supreme Court refuses to lift Title 42 restrictions. We cannot just throw up our hands and say the United States of America is not going to have an asylum system. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. San Diego wetlands are an emerging weapon against climate change. Plants are naturally carbon accumulating um, machines, right? They suck carbon dioxide out of the air. All this right here is, you know, all this biomass is basically just carbon. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando picks her top 10 movies of the year and a book about pies and novels and how you could create them both. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. Hopes that Title 42 restrictions would be lifted for asylum seekers before the new year were crushed on Tuesday. In a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court extended a stay, which keeps the policy in place until the court revisits the issue in February. The Title 42 issue is now bound up in legal complexities. But the public health law was originally used by the Trump administration to limit immigration during the height of the COVID pandemic. Lifting Title 42 would allow thousands of people waiting at the Mexican border to ask for asylum in the U.S., but now their wait continues. Joining me is Attorney Lee Gallant with the American Civil Liberties Union. And Lee, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What does Tuesday's Supreme Court ruling actually do to keep Title 42 in place? Well, it keeps Title 42 in place. It extends a temporary stay even longer while the Supreme Court considers a technical procedural issue about whether 19 states are allowed to join the case. So the Supreme Court will not be taking up the legality of Title 42, in fact, the merits of the case, but instead only a technical procedural issue about whether the states are allowed to join in this case. Both the ACLU and its partners and the Biden administration believe that it was time for Title 42 to end, and that, that made perfect sense, given that it was always supposed to be a temporary measure based on public health. You no longer, if, if, even assuming you could justify it in the beginning on public health grounds, it's clear you can no longer justify it on public health grounds. And so what we've said is Title 42 needs to end. If we want to talk about revising our asylum system, we can do that, but we can't continue to misuse a public health law. If you believe 
that at least some people deserve asylum, that some people are in real grave harm of persecution in their home countries, then you can't be for Title 42 because it eliminates any hearing whatsoever. So no matter how much danger you're in, you present yourself, you cannot get a hearing under Title 42. So for all those reasons, we are deeply disappointed that the court kept it in place, but we're gonna continue fighting. Ultimately, this is a temporary measure and we're gonna continue our court challenge as we've had for years and hope that this eventually ends. Practically speaking, though, is the infrastructure in place on the U.S. side to handle such a massive influx of asylum seekers when Title 42 was lifted? I think there's no question that we can do this. I mean, if you look at the Ukrainian situation, we surged resources to the border and we're able to process tens of thousands of Ukrainians. We can do that here. It's just a matter of where there's a will, there's a way. And I think what the administration has previously been counting on is that there would be some crutch like Title 42 to rely on. So they didn't actually have to roll up their sleeves, put the resources in place. But we certainly have the resources and we cannot just throw up our hand and say, the United States of America is not going to have an asylum system. We said after World War II, we would never again send people back to danger without at least a hearing. We have the resources. There may be some temporary influxes right now, but ultimately immigration and migration flows are cyclical and we can handle it. Well, along those lines, in your opinion then, how should the Biden administration be preparing for the next legal battle over Title 42? And what should they be doing to prepare for its eventual end? Unfortunately, the court has kept Title 42 in place, but what it also means is that the Biden administration has time to prepare. They should begin surging resources to the border, put more people there. We don't need so many people engaging enforcement actions with respect to these families coming. These families are not presenting a danger. We ought to put in place some of the regulations the Biden administration has put out there with certain tweaks to make the system more efficient. We ought to be figuring out the logistics of when people come in, where are they going to be processed, where are they going to be sent to. I think that the Biden administration has put out a plan. They say they have a plan and we ought to start implementing it. The one thing that we really don't want to see is when Title 42 ultimately ends, and I believe it will have to ultimately end, is the Biden administration pick another one of the anti-asylum Trump administration policies and just substitute that in. When President Biden ran for for president, he said, I'm going to have a more humane asylum system. That has really not materialized. And we really, this administration, to step up and say, in the United States, we are not just going to send people back to danger without even a hearing. I've been speaking with American Civil Liberties Union attorney, Lee Gallant. And Lee, thank you. Thanks so much for having me. As the legal battle over Title 42 continues, asylum seekers wait in Tijuana and at other border crossings. Advocates say conditions are deteriorating as the numbers of migrants grow and the wait goes on. Joining me is Associated Press reporter Elliot Spaggett. And Elliot, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Can you give us a sense of how many people are waiting to claim asylum and what conditions are like for them? You know, it's hard to have a precise count for a few reasons. One, there's no census. I would say certainly in the tens of thousands that are waiting in in border cities like Tijuana, then more who are waiting, you know, in their hometowns in Mexico and throughout Central America, Venezuela and so forth to come and and wait, you know, sort of on, on tenor hooks waiting to see what happens. Not all of them are going to apply for asylum. A lot of them, uh, you know, will get into the United States 
under exemptions to Title 42, but they'll just be put into the system without even claiming asylum. That happens later on. Uh, so it's it's really hard to say for sure, but lots of people, you know, as far as the conditions go, not great. I've been to a lot of shelters in Tijuana. Some of them are better than others, obviously, but in general, you know, some of the larger shelters are really packed. You know, a lot of people coughing, a lot of kids, you know, the air quality is not great. A lot of, you know, woman was was texting me earlier this week that she she was afraid that there was some kidnapper in the in the shelter. I don't know if that was true, but those are, that's the kind of fear that they're living under. And why do the people who are waiting at the border say that they're fleeing from their homelands? I would say, you know, it's inequality. There are a lot of people, you know, they had good jobs two years ago and then the pandemic hit and they lost them. A lot, a lot of people are getting extorted, uh, particularly in Central America. They just can't make a living. They get they get shaken down all the time. You know, a lot of people in Tijuana are from the Mexican states of Guerrero and Michoacan. And the stories that you hear out of there are just just stomach churning. I mean, one woman who we talked to last week had her house had been burned down. Her her brother got killed by the by the cartel. Her son ran away with, with the cartels to save them. Their land got stolen. They were threatened, you know, one thing after another. Um, so they're fleeing violence. And was there really a belief among the people waiting that Title 42 would be lifted this week? Probably as much of a sense as, as as you and I have. I mean, it's just really hard to know. There's just these, you know, two court cases that we know of. And the, the future is uncertain. is as uncertain today as it was yesterday. So I think the attitude in general, it's hard to generalize, but it's sort of like, you know, let's just wait and see what happens. Uh, some people are going to probably give up and have already and gone home. Others will stay in Tijuana and other border cities and just wait it out. And others will cross illegally and, and see if they, you know, try their luck in, in getting away. There seem to be a lot of loopholes in the Title 42 restrictions, for example, for people who are at highest risk. But there doesn't seem to be any clear policy about that, does there? Absolutely no clear policy about that. I mean, the uh, administration says that, you know, they would object to the term loopholes, but but they would say that this is a, you know, exemptions are for people who are highly vulnerable, deemed highly vulnerable. And they don't say what those reasons are. And perhaps they have good reasons not to because everyone would claim that they're under such, you know, conditions. But, you know, it's supposed to be things like, you know, people who are LGBT, people who have been specifically threatened with with violence, people who, you know, are, are an imminent threat in Mexico. But again, we don't know, you know, how many of these, these there are, uh, how many people are allowed in. We know from the Tijuana city officials that 200 people are allowed in daily at San Ysidro. And we know that those those slots are distributed among NGOs, different NGOs and shelters in Tijuana. And they pick, the ultimate decision rests with CBP, but CBP relies on them to pick, you know, who gets in. So that just sets off a guessing game among migrants about who's got the connections and how they're going to get in. And it's very opaque and, and bewildering. I've been speaking with Associated Press reporter Elliot Spaggett. Elliot, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. <laughs> it's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. 
We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Hindman. San Diego researchers working to stave off the worst impacts of global warming are looking for answers in the region's wetlands. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says cattails could be part of the answer. San Diego's Batiquitos Lagoon sits right beside one of the region's busiest highways, Interstate 5. But it's the gently swaying stalks of cattails that have captured the interest of two researchers at the Salk Institute for Biological Studies. So you can see how hard it is to dig out. That's why it, it really holds the sediment extremely well. Joseph Noel watches his colleague Todd Michael use a small hand shovel to cut into the dirt around the base of a cattail stem. Michael lifts up a newly liberated plant. This is an example, it's still alive, so you can see a new shoot is forming. The plant's roots are coated in a sticky black mud. The rich, wet dirt is created by the constant push and pull of this coastal wetland environment. Michael says saltwater regularly flows into the estuary, pushing back and even killing the freshwater cattails. The ones that replace them grow over the dead, and that creates the sediment. So this is the rhizome. Uh, it's hard to see because it's all muddy. The rhizome is an underground stem that grows sideways, much like the roots of grass found in Southern California yards. But it's not what Noel is interested in. It turns out that wetland plants, plants that have wet feet, either like this or even fully submerged, they make a lot of subarin, particularly in their roots. And subarin has the salt team's attention. Subarin is a waxy layer covering small root structures. It helps cattails regulate water. They can block the salt water and allow fresh water in. Michael says the subarin-covered appendages are full of carbon molecules. Plants are naturally carbon-accumulating um, machines, right? They suck carbon dioxide out of the air. All this right here is, you know, all this biomass is basically just carbon. And the carbon molecules in subarin don't break down when the plant dies. Noel says the carbon lingers in the mucky sediment. You can almost see it. It's all, all the, it's very dark and black, so it's full of carbon. In fact, I bet if you dug down, you know, up to 10 feet below this, depending on how long this existed, it would be a huge amount of carbon that's stored. Noel and Michael have sequenced the cattail genome, and they hope to transfer that plant's ability to make subarin into crop plants like corn and sorghum. With these new gene editing technologies, we really think we're going to be able to go into these crop plants and tweak them, and so the roots will have more of this substance. The impact could be huge. Crop plants with the modified roots could pull as much as a quarter of the planet's excess carbon out of the air. That's enough to have a real impact on climate change. This is a key part of the Salk Institute's Harnessing Plants initiative, and Michael says cattails or typha have other traits that could make plants more resilient. Each cattail makes 300,000 plus seeds. And if you've ever seen a cattail release its seeds, it looks like snow. 
And all of those seeds have the potential to be a new, um, a new stand of typho. But the habitat that is so efficient at storing carbon has been under assault for decades. Darren Smith is a senior environmental scientist with the California State Parks. He says urbanization has eliminated 90% of the state's coastal wetlands. There's, there's been a big change with people. You know, I think wetlands were something almost like an oasis early on in California where you just didn't run into fresh water very often. And those same wetlands that are giving researchers hope about slowing climate change are under a lot of stress. Smith says people are making it hard for the habitat to adapt. You know, we built right up to them. We built the watersheds and we built right up to the edges of them. And so for them to, to do what they do, to you know, retreat or for the water to back up and form new vegetated wetlands further upstream, there's just got to be the space to do it. Researchers say giving the habitat space allows scientists extra time to find other plant traits that could play a role in reducing the speed of climate change. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. Earlier this year, the city of San Diego apologized for supporting the removal and incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. The city rescinded a 1942 resolution that called for the FBI to remove Japanese Americans from the city. Council members said the 80-year-old resolution was racist and hateful. Midday Edition's Jade Heinemann spoke with Kay Achi, president of the Japanese American Historical Society of San Diego, about what the apology means to the community. Here's their conversation. This resolution came on the heels of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's executive order, which opened the door for this and the forced removal and incarceration of people of Japanese descent. What is your reaction to San Diego's apology? Well, I'm, I'm completely thrilled. I'm so pleased with the San Diego City Council uh, for unanimously passing this resolution to rescind. And what initiated the city of San Diego's rescission? It came through a collaboration between the Central Library and the Historical Society. We worked on a really fabulous exhibit that was last fall into this January about Clara Breed. And she was a librarian back before World War II, during and afterwards, and had befriended her students who came into the library, but not just befriended, but she just um, helped them when they had, were forced to leave San Diego with their parents. Upwards of 2,000 Japanese Americans were forced to leave the city. And she was there at the train station to see them off. She gave them small gifts of postcards with postage. She maintained lifelong relationships with these Japanese Americans. And so this exhibit um, led to some research that the librarians did, and they uncovered Resolution 76068, which had all of that hateful language. And um, they took it upon themselves. I like to think of them as our librarian activists who wrote the resolution to rescind, uh, worked with local people, meaning the Historical Society and the Japanese American Citizens League, to get our input and support, of course. And um, that's where it all started. And I'm so grateful. And if you don't mind personal privilege, uh, I want to do a shout out to Steve Roman, Sarah Hendy Jackson, Mark Cherry, Moni Tong, and Jennifer Jenkins. These are the five, the team that really spearheaded this effort. Hmm. And you've been deeply involved in this moment in history. How has your work and background prepared you for this? Oh, thank you. Um, 
40 years ago, 40 years ago, sounds like a long time, I joined uh, an organization based primarily in Los Angeles, Nikkei for Civil Rights and Redress. Nikkei is the term for people of Japanese ancestry. We were a grassroots organization and uh, I was a teacher for 30 plus years. We had, you know, housewives and gardeners and truck drivers and all manner of folk from the Japanese American community who uh, got together to fight, to demand that the government um, apologize and provide, you know, redress and reparations. NCRR uh, was one of it, mainly the grassroots organization that involved the people who went through the camps, the people who, who really suffered. And as we learned their stories, because as we well know, you know, history really didn't talk about what happened to the Japanese people. They were only that they were removed. Um, the more we learned, it just not only angered us, it filled us with sadness about the stories that we had never learned and heard because our parents didn't speak about it. Um, you know, they were too busy trying to recover after the three-year imprisonment. My mom and dad with the San Diego Japanese were sent to post in Arizona. And, you know, having come to San Diego, this beautiful, you know, oasis, a beautiful resort town, to go to the, you know, horrible desert for three years, um, not only was it a physical shock, but mostly it was an emotional shock for the losses that they suffered. And I do have to say the main one, besides the obvious property losses, was um, their dignity and their, you know, they, they had a sense of shame of being targeted as being the enemy uh, because of the actions of Imperial Japan. And so even 40 years later, when I joined NCRR, you know, we learned about uh, all that happened to them, the real story, the real history. And it just fired us up. And I believe that those testimonies, which happened through a federal commission, and this is important, um, Jimmy Carter did us the huge favor of passing this um, federal commission to study what happened to Japanese Americans. And this happened in 1981. The federal commission came to Los Angeles and we heard over 150 testimonies of primarily Japanese Americans about what really happened to their families. But this uh, occurred, the commission went all over the United States to nine different major cities with Japanese Americans. They collected over almost 800 testimonies. But the bottom line is the report that they were required to present. They concluded that our incarceration was based on race prejudice, wartime hysteria, and the failure of leadership. And so that really propelled us further to fight for redress and reparations. And um, I just want to say that I feel so lucky. I was born after the war. I didn't have to suffer through it as my parents, my older sister, the community and upwards of you know, more than 120,000 people. You know, I mean, you say when people hear about the forced removal of Japanese Americans, they don't really understand the depth of trauma and pain that was and still is experienced. And, you know, I know that this issue is very personal for you, and you often talk about your parents. How were they impacted by this? My parents were one of the fortunate ones. They were 20 and 21 years old when they were forcibly removed. And um, they did not, they were very um, not wealthy people. They had no property by that time. So they did not have that loss. And because they had been raised in Japan, they were less aware perhaps of the, of the constitutional rights to which they should have been afforded. They made the best of it. And that would be the theme of our community. They were proud Americans, so proud to be Americans that there was a sector 
who felt that the best thing to do to show our, our pride and our loyalty to this country is not to make a fuss. But after the war, they were able to return to Barrio Logan, Logan Heights. And one particular family, um, Japanese American family, had a home and another had a small market right on Logan Heights. And through the kindness of neighbors, the Nava family, that home and business was protected. So the, the Hayashis actually were able to return to Barrio Logan. And my mom and dad um, were able to move into their home. And that's how Japanese Americans had no place to go. Everything had been taken from us, except for those places that were protected by good people. And so uh, we lived there first, Barrio Logan. And uh, as like many Japanese Americans, you know, as I said, my dad was involved with the fishing industry and my mom worked in the tuna canneries. But then with hard work, about 10 years later, they were able to uh, cobble together enough money for a down payment. And now uh, they were able to purchase a home in Chula Vista. And your parents, they, they did accept reparations from the U.S. government. Not everyone did. Why did they make the decision to accept them? Yes, absolutely. I think um, the Civil Liberties Act of 1988, that was the uh, legislation that we had fought for. And what it did, it was apologize. And that was huge. The apology was even more important to our community for the majority than the token reparations. And um, my mom and dad, they accepted the reparations gladly. The amount was $20,000. And some people, I don't know how you react to that amount, but it was nothing. It was so token compared to the three years of lost lives, businesses, opportunities, you know, hopes and dreams. And most importantly, their freedom was taken from them for those years. So $20,000 was really nothing. Um, but for them, you know, low economic um, people, they were very grateful. And I don't mind sharing that they were able to put a new roof on their house at that point, you know, and do things that uh, people uh, have to do. And for which, you know, they were really, really um, didn't have a lot of extra money. They, as a good person, good parents would, they gave their children, a, you know, a small amount of that money. I want to play a clip from City Council President Monica Montgomery Stepp from the meeting on Tuesday. Yes. I do think that it is our duty to use our platforms to speak out against hate in any form. Um, and I also just want to briefly shout out my uh, Reparations Task Force uh, fellow member, Don Tamaki, who is an attorney in the Bay Area who's really helping us. Do uh, you know him? <laughs> He's helping us to really wade through what reparations looks like um, based on his experience and being a true ally in that fight. And, and you are involved with the State Reparations Task Force, and I wonder if you can talk about why it's important for you to be an ally for Black Americans in this effort. Absolutely, um, yes. With N NTRR once again, um, we realized early on, this is back in the 80s, that it was our fight, but we had the privilege of having gone through the civil rights movement and learning the lessons of all those leaders and, you know, working with um, people of color, uh, students, you know, when they were starting ethnic studies programs on different college campuses. And those lessons were well-learned. And so with NTRR, our principles of, of unity, of organizing, were number one, direct monetary reparations for the Japanese American uh, people who were 
you know, who suffered at the hands of the government. That was number one. But two was education, education about what happened. And uh, because, you know, it was not written about, the truth was not told there. And third, that we would support other communities in their fight for justice when especially targeted by the government. We feel that it, these are not isolated events. It's the harms are really based on a, a very, very damaged system in this country of white supremacy. And, um, you know, we really look to the Constitution and, and their promises of, you know, justice for all. And I think that is really, really um, one of our main points. And certainly of AB 3121, um, I think the time is right. I think now is a time that we, we really work hard for some repair uh, to our Black communities. I've been speaking with Kay Ochi of the Japanese American Historical Society of San Diego. Kay, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. My pleasure. Thank you very much. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Jade Heinemann. 2022 saw theaters fully reopened, but audiences were not quite ready to return in pre-pandemic numbers. But that didn't stop filmmakers from delivering some stunning work that deserved to be seen on the big screen. KPBS film critic Beth Accomando saw hundreds of films last year and compiled this list of her top ten. 2022 is ending on a sad note, as I just received word from one of the owners that the Ken Cinema has been sold and is unlikely to remain a theater. It's not a surprise at this point, but it still hurts and is a great loss to the San Diego film community. As the year comes to an end, I'm also saddened by the fact that I still haven't caught up with all the 2022 releases that I wanted to watch. But I saw enough worthy films to fill my top 10 list. On a certain level, I feel a bit curmudgeonly as I grow more and more impatient with bland, formulaic storytelling. Top Gun Maverick may have saved cinemas and set the post-pandemic box office on fire, but it left me cold and bored. I did, however, find solace in foreign and independent films that push the envelope in terms of style, content, and narrative structure. It's always an agonizing process to rank my favorites because they tend to be diverse. Does fun rank higher than deep introspection? How can you compare horror, comedy, and drama? It's like trying to pick your favorite child when you love them all precisely because each is unique. So, without further ado, let the countdown begin. Go! At number 10 is the year's most intoxicatingly fun piece of pure cinema, S.S. Rajamouli's RRR. It features ridiculously gorgeous stars, crazy action set pieces, an evil empire you love to hate, melodrama to swoon over, and of course, musical numbers that are absolutely irresistible. In stark contrast to the over-the-top flamboyance of RRR is the subtle precision of Park Chan-wook's decision to leave. Coming in at number nine, Park's film is a police procedural, a film noir, a romance, and an intricately conceived challenge to conventional narrative structure. 
This is a film I wish I had seen on the big screen because I feel like I miss details on the small one. And honestly, I haven't even begun to scratch the surface of its meaning until I see it again. Its innovative style held me wrapped, and its characters were fascinatingly unpredictable. In the number eight slot is Broker, another Korean film, but this one directed by Japan's Hirokazu Koreeda. A young woman leaves her baby at a church adoption, only to discover a pair of brokers has stolen the child. She coerces them into letting her come along as they try to sell the child to new parents. Once again, Koreeda reveals that families can be formed from the most unlikely components. The film is achingly human, immensely compassionate, and exquisitely told. Equally exquisite at number seven is Lav Diaz's "When the Waves Are Gone." At 187 minutes, this meditation on power, corruption, and violence is long and slow, but also riveting and brutal. Diaz takes his time and ratchets up tension with sublime, patient precision. Shot in bleak but breathtaking black and white, it offers little hope or relief. Yet the filmmaking is so transcendent that you leave exhilarated. Coming in at number six, I have some comic relief with Ruben Uslan's first English language film, Triangle of Sadness. It opens by poking fun at an audition for male models. So, is this runway casting for a grumpy brand or a smiley brand? Then moves to a luxury liner. <laughs> Russian capitalist and an American <laughs> communist.、Oh. On a two hundred fifty million dollar luxury yacht. But the humor has a savage bite as he skewers the rich and privileged. Privilege and power are on the table in my number five choice, Tar. Todd Field wrote the title role of a conductor who orchestrates her own downfall specifically for Kate Blanchett, and she devours the role. She dazzles us with an unflinching and perfectly calibrated performance. Now the illusion is that. Like you, I'm responding to the orchestra in real right, time, making、right. the decision about the right moment to restart the thing, or reset it, or throw time out the window altogether. The reality is that right from the very beginning, I know precisely what time、really? it is and the exact moment that you and I will arrive at our destination together. Control is key in my number four pick. Speak no evil. Christian Taftrup's film is intense, anxiety-inducing, and puts you through the ringer. No one's forcing you to stay. And that's the source of tension. No one is forcing a Danish family to stay at the home of a creepy couple, but fear of social awkwardness keeps them from leaving. It's a brutal slow burn executed with an elegant, subdued style that captivated me from opening frame to last. I am paying attention. You need to pay absolute attention to my number three pick: Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. Michelle Yeoh plays Evelyn, a put-upon laundromat owner whose problems take on an existential dimension as she's told the future of the multiverse depends on her. I'm not your husband, and he's not the one you know. I'm another version of him from another life path, another universe. I'm here because we need your help. Very busy today, and no time to help you. There's a great evil that has taken root in my world, and has begun spreading its chaos throughout the many verses. I've spent years searching for the one who might be able to match this great evil with an even greater good and bring back balance. All those years of searching have brought me here, to this universe, to you. I know it's a lot to take in right now. Got 
Mrs. Wang. Hello. Written and directed by the Daniels, individually known as Dan Kwan and Daniel Schneinert, the film comes at you with chaotic energy and sucks you in like a black hole. Yo's stellar performance gives the film an anchoring humanity that makes us care, even though the universe tells us that nothing matters. It is time to stop seeing. It is time to stop speaking. It is time to listen. My number two spot goes to David Cronenberg's glorious return to body horror in Crimes of the Future. I removed these tombs as part of our performance. We are performance artists. We perform together. I love seeing a 79-year-old filmmaker who's more radical and transgressive than his younger colleagues. This film offers a stunningly crafted meditation on Cronenberg's own career and on the relationship of artists to their work. An artist's commitment to his work is just one of the reasons I give the number one spot to Phil Tippett's 30-year passion project, Mad God. The film is a wordless descent into hell for the characters, the audience, and Tippett himself. Not unlike Captain Ahab and Moby Dick, you know, and I went down with the whale, ended up for a, a few days in a psych ward, and then recovery for about six weeks. Tippett gives us a film that's a fever dream, combining madness, chaos, despair, and beauty. Every frame of the stop-motion animation is dense with detail. It's bleak and dark, but also gorgeously seductive in its meticulous craftsmanship. It tells us that we are utterly insignificant and that nothing matters. But the film itself is absolute proof that art matters. So there you have it, my very personal and eclectic top 10 films of 2022. I hope you'll check some of them out. That was KPBS film critic and cinema junkie Beth Accomando. Check out her complete roundup of the best and worst of 2022 at kpbs.org. Amy Wallen is a writing instructor and the author of three books. Her latest is a hybrid memoir, craft book, and cookbook called How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. It's about her effort to cook up a novel, as well as a how-to guide to write one yourself. And yes, there's pie. She spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. So is this something that you always wanted to write, a book about how to write a book? And at what point did you know that it would also be a pie cookbook? <laughs> yeah, no, I never thought I would write um, a book about how to write a book. I also never thought I would write a memoir. And I also never thought I would write a novel. <laughs> so maybe the books decide for me, which I'm going to write. But um, no, this book came to me when I was teaching, actually, at UCSD. And I just saw all of these students that I have been teaching for years and years and knew that they were so anxious to get a book written and wanted to know how to write it and wanted to know all the secrets. And I had been telling so many of my own stories over the years repeatedly. And it just occurred to me when I was standing up there that I could share those stories in a book. And the cookbook part came because a friend of mine asked me to do a cookbook with her. 
Um, but I didn't consider myself a professional cook. And, but I just had the idea of combining the two when I started thinking about, you know, what if I did write a cookbook? And so one of my great loves is, is pie. And I did also feel like it's how I survived getting through it because the book isn't so much a how-to as it is a more of an encouragement to persevere, to get all the way to the end, to get to um, through publishing. Cause it's such a long, hard road to write any book. It's, it doesn't have to be a novel. It can be a memoir or any kind of book or anything, any big project that you're trying to get through. So it's more about the survival part, I guess. I think one of my favorite three lines in the book is your early relationship with making pie crust or sometimes even faking a pie crust. Um, And to me, making pie crust is probably as intimidating as writing a book. Can you walk us through what happened in that moment? I believe there was a trash can involved. (laughs) Sure. Um, My in-laws were visiting and they were um, very very Americana uh, family um, kind of people. And so I thought I would make chicken pot pie. And I had been trying to make pie crust. I could never get it. It always just ended up being a gloppy mess. So I gave up and I used to always tell people, oh, you know, you know, easy as pie. That's a lie. Um, so I always told people that my pie crusts were bought. I bought Pillsbury, um, to the point that even when I shared recipes with people, Google would send me, uh, Pillsbury recipes because I would put Pillsbury as the recommended pie crust to use. But then, uh, when these particular in-laws were visiting, it was my ex-husband's, uh, family. I, um, Actually, my sister-in-law asked me, oh, did you make your pie crust from scratch? And I just automatically, for whatever reason, out of my mouth came. I sure did. And right as I said that, she was helping me clean the dishes uh, from the dinner. And I heard the lid of the trash can go up. And I know she saw that red Pillsbury box sitting on the top of the trash can. (laughs) But she didn't say anything because she's politer than I am. And, um, and I didn't say anything, but I went right out after that and bought a Cuisinart so that I could start doing, um, pie crust from scratch. I don't believe I have ever bought another Pillsbury pie crust since that incident. So I can always now say all my pie crusts are from scratch. So there's a vulnerability in writing a book like this and laying out your mistakes and U-turns for everybody to see. And I'm wondering if this is all a part of teaching also. Oh, definitely. Like I said, that very first question you asked about, um, about, you know, coming up with this idea was looking out at my students and realizing they want me, you know, every teacher knows that feeling of seeing this classroom of everybody just thinks you're going to give them the answers to everything. And, and really, we're just sharing what, what we do know, the corner of whatever knowledge we have. And mine, I really believe in, you know, learning from mistakes. And I made so many mistakes along the way in in publishing my first book and also my memoir. And um, I just wanted to share those. And I think some of those stories and realizing that, you know, getting up and scraping off our or wiping off our, you know, scraped knees, all of that is part of the process. And so book is really more about perseverance. You know, this, um, you know, I always kind of, in fact, even with this book that's out now, 
uh, that's not out yet, but almost um, we've had some little snafus like with shipping, with COVID shipping and things like that. And I keep thinking this is the glamorous life of publishing because it's, you know, there's always something that you have to just keep believing and keep moving forward and not give up along the way. Um, you know, it even took me two agents to get this book published. And people are always like, oh, it takes so long to get an agent. Why bother? And, you know, it's about finding the right one and believing and continuing to believe, but it's hard. So I wanted the book to be something that made people have a good time. Um, and that's my, you know, the biggest lesson of all I think I would like to teach is try to have fun along the way. This book is illustrated. Uh, Amal Wilson's art is endearing. It's funny. And it does so much more than enhance the text. There are entire pages of comic strips. What was that process like for you both? Working with Amal was was fabulous. Um, we had been friends originally. Uh, we were both in the same writing group together with Janet Fitch. And um, he was also an art director in advertising, and he's also a pie baker. So after a writing group, we often had pie together. Um, he's also, um, I just, you know, when I had the idea for this book and I'd written about five chapters, I had a proposal ready, but I didn't have the illustrations. I sent it to him. Our senses of humor are both very sardonic. He got it. He sent me illustrations that to go with it and said, what do you think? Do you think this would work? I was like, yes, I think totally hit what I wanted in the idea. And it just kind of flowed from there. He just, it was really great working with him. I learned later that actually when you have a book, usually the publisher picks the illustrator for you. So it's kind of rare that two people come together like this. Um, but I think we just had, we clicked already as friends and knew each other and came into this with the same feelings about this work. Um, and that I think is what really makes a big difference. He did over 200 illustrations, which is huge. So I think perseverance, which is the whole goal of this book is to promote perseverance. I think he definitely had to apply that as well. So yeah, it was a great, it was a great relationship and a lot of work. And I was, I just so elated to see what he came up with. It's, it's, it's kind you know, I always wondered what it's like to see your, Words is like a movie or coming to life. And I feel like it's kind of what he did with his illustrations. I can't let you go without giving us a pie recommendation. Do you have a pie for, for journalists? For journalists? Um, you know, gosh, I love all of them. Do you guys want sweet or savory? Let's go sweet. Sweet pie. Uh, you know, I'm going to say the coconut cream pie. And maybe just because I'm so old fashioned that I still think when you say the word journalist, I think black and white um, newspaper. So I think of my um, coconut cream pie with the Oreo crust. And so there you get a black and white pie and it is really, really good. And I use whipped cream for the topping and lots of coconut milk and coconut cream. And so it's actually might even be dairy free. I think it might be. I have to look at the recipe again, but I created this recipe for this book. So yeah, it's good. It's very, it's kind of like a almond joy. Amy, thank you so much. Oh, thank you, Julia. This was fun. That was Amy Wallen speaking with KPBS arts producer and editor, Julia Dixon Evans. Wallen is the author of the book, How to Write a Novel in 20 Pies. <laughs> 